MacCast, Sunday, June 4th, 2023. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back. To the MacCast. Uh, glad to be back here with you for another episode of uh, Mac Hints, Tips, Tricks, all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a great start to your summer. I guess we're kind of officially moving into summer now through spring. Uh, probably should address uh, what has been going on recently. You may or may not have noticed it's been a little while since the last episode. Yep, just needing to take some time to focus on some family things. I think I mentioned before, this year has been one of those years where it's been a little bit odd. Um, having come through all the stuff the past few years, I think it's just important for me to focus on uh, family and uh, just my overall mental health sometimes. And so needed a little break, took that. Uh, but we are back and we've got tons of stuff to get into specifically we're sitting here on the eve of worldwide developer conference we've talked about all the things that might be coming we're going to get into some of that today maybe you'll know all the answers to some of the things we're going to speculate on in this episode so it'll be interesting to compare to see you know what was being rumored and sort of what got right what what was what we got right i guess is how i want to say that um but we are going to dive in we're going to get into a lot of worldwide developer conference stuff um, some of the things that we're expecting to happen, both related to Apple's AR VR headset, also the operating system, maybe some new Macs and other things. We'll get into all of that. Then we have some speculation for future iPhones. Uh, we know we've talked a lot about the iPhone 15 models that we're expecting this year. We're starting to now get some rumors surrounding what might be next. So we'll get in and talk about those. And then we're going to talk about uh, one of Apple's services that is shutting down and what that might mean for you. And then we're going to get into some of your feedback. We have some great feedback on uh, alternatives to controlling iOS uh, without having to touch the screen. We had a question related to that um, about working out and just how some of the touch controls can kind of be a little bit hard to hit sometimes. And we've got some great advice from the community on some alternatives or things that you can do. Um, I'm going to get into a little Apple history, something that I am kind of passionate about. Well, I'm passionate about passionate about Apple, and I really love history. And a little story came up this week that I want to tell you about uh, that I think is very interesting, and it combines both those things. So that's a lot of fun. We're going to get into that. We have some time machine questions, and then I've got a couple quick uh, tips and tricks for you from the community. So it should be a great episode. So I say we just dive right in talking about Worldwide Developer Conference, uh, which is happening Monday, June 5th. Likely you're uh, already aware of it by the time this episode, you get to this episode. But invites went out. Uh, the theme is Code New Worlds. That was kind of the tagline on the invite. And that just sort of reaffirmed, I think, for everyone that Apple's going to be kind of focusing on AR, VR, and their rumored AR, VR headset. 
Um, Apple specifically sent invites out to members of the AR and VR community, both developers and journalists for the event. So another kind of thing, sort of tipping the hand. Norman Chan from Tested got an invite. Um, He does a lot of AR, VR reviews. And Ian Hamilton, who is a VR journalist from Upload VR. So I think it's pretty safe bet uh, that we're going to get a look at where Apple's going with their AR VR headset. Um, shipments of the headset are predicted to be probably pretty low, considering it's rumored to have at least a $1,500, but probably more likely $3,000 price tag. So first version of this is going to have a lot of really high-tech stuff in it. It's going to be very much, I think, focused on the developer community, getting it in the hands of developers, which is why they're going to kind of kick it off, I think, at Worldwide Developer Conference, along with probably a bunch of new coding tools and stuff for developers. expect to see that. Um, But Early adoption estimates uh, from sources like TrendForce are saying Apple might ship as few as 100,000 units in the first year, which for Apple is very, very small. Apple themselves have reportedly capped the first year production at 300,000 units, according to some rumors. You may remember back in December, Ming-Chi Kuo had downgraded his first year estimates on Apple's headset from 1.5 million units in the first year to just 500,000. Mark Gurman has said recently that Apple hopes to sell 900,000 units in the first year, but that's sounding very optimistic at this point. Gurman also guesstimated that uh, Apple might sell one unit per retail store per day after launch, would just which would just be 180,000 units. So... Regardless, there's a lot of speculation that Apple is going to not sell a lot of these in the first year, but that's likely probably not the point. Again, this is to get Apple's foot in the door, to get the product out there, to get people sort of thinking about it, especially developers, and uh, we'll have to see how that goes for them. For perspective on those numbers, uh, Sony had reportedly sold just 270,000 of their new PlayStation VR 2 units since they were announced in February of 2023. So there's just an overall softening, I think, of the ARVR market. A lot of people are hoping that Apple's entry is going to kind of kickstart things and ramp up again, get more people excited about it, about ARVR. And I think we've talked about this a little bit. It's really going to come down to the software and the applications and the justification for it. I think the tech is going to be a big part of it, but really Apple has to do their Apple thing and show us how this is going to be really impactful in our lives and how it's going to, um, you know, bring value, how it's going to change, how it's going to provide that impact. And that's something Apple is always very good at and likely why it's taken them so long to get something in the market. So I don't know about you, but I'm going to be paying very close attention to sort of how they frame it and what they're doing at the keynote uh, for Worldwide Developer Conference. And uh, I'll be very, very interested to hear what Tim Cook and the entire team at Apple has to say about it. Now, getting back to that high price tag, it's looking like that's likely due to the design and a lot of the hardware specs. This is going to be no slouch when it comes to technology that's in this thing. Analyst Wayne Ma claims that it's, quote, the most complicated hardware product Apple has ever created. And that's because it's got a very compact size. There's a lot of curved components. They're saying including the first ever bent motherboard. It's got curved glass. It's supposed to be very lightweight, um, very difficult to assemble. 
and the curved glass could also mean that it's a lot more delicate. Uh, so you're going to have to be careful if you get one of these things. Very expensive, very likely breakable. So I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot of reports of people once this actually comes out, which is likely going to be later in the year. I wouldn't be surprised if Apple says it's going to be out before the end of the year and then maybe even misses that target. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. I think they probably do want to get out this year. They're pro- they could announce a fall time frame. Not really sure what they're going to do, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, the entire frame's rumored to be aluminum. It's going to have very soft fabric. I'm assuming the fabric's going to be very similar to the kind of fabric design that we see in the AirPods Pro Max. Um, and the strap on the Apple watch, the sort of head or the AR VR headset, excuse me, is supposedly going to be very much like an Apple watch band style material. So that, that soft silicone rubber, uh, sort of material overall, the design is rumored to be sort of like a ski goggle design with a digital crown. That's going to allow you to spin and transition between the AR and VR modes. So could have very cool dimming technology on the front glass. Um, It's expected to have at least some sort of M2 level Apple processor. I'm assuming Apple will have a whole new processor design for this thing. Um, The displays are going to be very high resolution, dual high resolution 4K micro OLED displays. Uh, Original rumors said with up to 3000 pixels per inch density, although display analyst Ross Young came out and said they're going to be using, again, micro LED technology. They're going to be 1.4 inch displays measured diagonally, possibly with a 4000 pixel per inch target, which is extremely, extremely high. Also a max 5000 nit brightness, which kind of blows away anything else on the market. And that's really going to mean a lot in terms of the Christmas crispness and the details of the display. And I have a feeling that's going to come down to some of the applications that Apple has for this. I'm really thinking they're going to kind of show off big virtual desktops. So you can put these on, kind of have a full, uh, you know, large monitor experience, but you're going to want crisp, clean, sharp text on that sort of thing. And so I think that's going to be one of the applications along with a bunch of others. Uh, The device is going to supposedly have eye and hand tracking done through dozens of different cameras and sensors. You'll be able to select items on the screen just by looking at them and then use hand gestures like a pinch gesture to sort of click on items, those sorts of things. Um, They will offer the ability to purchase prescription lenses for this that uh, reportedly will magnetically clip into the headset. So going to be additional cost for folks like me on top of the already high price tag for probably some prescription lenses to go in it as well. There's still uh, the rumor that there's going to be a separate battery pack that is attached, so it's not going to be built into the headset that's supposedly to keep the weight down, um, and it's going to have a MagSafe-style connector, so you'll have some sort of belt or some sort of holder for the battery. Original estimates were that the battery is going to provide between two to three hours of usage. I think it's going to need to be longer than that. Otherwise, you're going to need multiple batteries for this thing, which is going to be a little bit crazy and, again, add to the cost for a lot of people. 
It's definitely expected to have a focus on all kinds of experiences for things like video watching, also health and fitness functionality. Uh, there have been rumors of a special version of FaceTime for doing conferencing, so I think there's going to be some business focuses to this. Again, I think there's going to be a lot of focus throughout the presentation on how you're going to use this special versions of maps the maps app for doing navigation although it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to spin this for people going out actually in public sort of wearing this device um still a little bit bulky you know eventually we want to get to more of that sunglasses style interface but rumors are that that is years and years away at this point even for apple it's, of course, also expected, especially on the VR side of things, to have a focus on gaming. Uh, this past uh, couple weeks, we also got some Twitter tw uh, Twitter sort of leaks for from different game developers that make it sound like they might have some awesome VR games coming to this. Hello Games founder Sean Murray, uh, the company that makes No Man's Sky, sent out a couple of cryptic Apple tweets, although one of them might have just been related to the fact that they finally launched Hello Sky for Mac this past week. Um, but they also have a VR version of that. So, and it does support VR. So a lot of folks expecting to maybe see a demo of No Man's Sky on Apple's new headset. There was also a cryptic tweak from a Beat Games co-founder, uh, Jar Jaroslav Beck. Hopefully I didn't mutilate his name. They're the makers of the game Beat Saber, which is an incredibly popular uh, VR game on other headsets. So that could be coming to the platform as well. Again, I think Apple's going to really put a focus on a lot of the developer kits and AR kits and all the different kits surrounding this product for developers to get them really jazzed and excited about developing for the platform. As far as the operating system goes, uh, there have been several contenders for the name of the OS. As far as we know, there have been at least five different names trademarked by Apple through different shell companies. XROS, Reality OS, Real OS, Reality Pro OS, XR Pro OS. But according to Bloomberg and other sources this past week, Apple supposedly has landed on XROS, which is supposed to stand for Extended Reality OS. And it's believed to be very much ha to have an iOS-like interface in terms of navigating apps. We can expect probably a dedicated app store, all of those things. So this product is definitely going to be, I think, the star of the keynote at Worldwide Developer Conference. It's going to generate a lot of buzz, probably going to also generate a lot of criticism and critical analysis which i think is really really good and i'm going to be doing that myself i'm going to be really searching to find out how apple is going to make the justification for this product and to figure out is this really the next evolution of how we interact with computers and computer interfaces and stuff like that i i'm still having a hard time believing that this is the direction we're all going to be moving in but you know maybe apple will actually pull it off and i'm really curious i would love to get a lot of your feedback after you see the keynote after you see the launch of the product i'm sure we'll be coming back with another mac cast probably very quickly after i can kind of get through a lot of uh the feedback and the things from the community once i start hearing a lot of that probably going to try and get another episode out really quickly to talk about all these great announcements that happen at worldwide developer conference but it's kind of fun to think that we're again in uh, 
this exciting age where we're going to have an entirely new category of product from Apple to sort of discuss and look at and analyze. And and we haven't had that in a while, right? What was the last one? Really? Apple Watch or maybe AirPods Pro? Yeah, I mean, we've had, uh, I guess Apple Silicon is in that in that vein, right? We've had a few great years of talking about Apple Silicon, but to have a whole new category of product from Apple, I think that's going to be really fun and exciting. And I'm looking forward to that. So I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Maccast at gmail.com. A big focus of Worldwide Developer Conference, of course, is more on the software side. And as we might expect, a big focus of the keynote is also going to be all of the IO, all of the OS updates. I was going to say iOS updates, but it's not just iOS anymore, right? We've got iOS, iPadOS, tvOS, watchOS, macOS, homeOS. Am I forgetting any of the other ones? I'm sure, sure I am. But all of Apple's operating systems are going to be getting a refresh. Apple will be focusing on those. Um, as far as some of the features that we are expecting, there's a few different things. According to Mark Gurman, iOS 17 could have a new smart home display mode when it's docked and powered on and in a horizontal orientation. This would be for the iPhone. It'd be something kind of similar to Apple Watch's nightstand mode, with but with a little bit more functionality. So kind of related to a little bit of the always-on display, but taking it to the next level. The idea would be it would be able to display data from uh, widgets on the display when it was in this mode. Things like your calendar appointments, weather data, notifications, all those things could be being updated in real time. So it really kind of becomes this like place where you can look. The report, again, indicates it's more for the iPhone at first, but Apple is also supposedly working on similar functionality for iPad OS. Um, but the report says that that might not be ready for a reveal at Worldwide Developer Conference. Um they also could go along with a previous rumor, and I think we talked about this in the past, that Apple is working on a low-cost tablet that could specifically function sort of as a HomeKit hub and a smart home control surface that you'd be able to magnetically attach to your wall. So Apple kind of moving in this direction of having a, you know, your display be like the thing when you're walking around your house that can control your house, can relay information, and have all this sort of stuff in, in a little lower-cost mode. So kind of think of a... um like a mini iPad or just like a supplemental iPad. I don't know what we would call it, but yeah, basically this low cost display. And it sounds like they're bringing some of that thought to potentially iOS 17 uh, with the iPhone. So we'll have to wait and see if they, if they uh, end up announcing that. Uh, it is though possible beyond all of the software and all the developer stuff that we could see some new Macs it's really probably not likely that we're going to see M3 Max yet, but some people are hoping for that as well. I think it's possible we could see the rumored 15-inch MacBook Air. Uh, so the larger MacBook Air would likely come with the same CPU options and M2 Pro, M2 Max as the current MacBook Air line. So just in addition to the 13-inch model. Um, we could also see the Mac Pro finally, but I think that's still a ways off. I don't I don't think we're actually going to see the Mac Pro, if ever. That's a big question because I think the strongest contender for a announcement at worldwide developer at worldwide developer conference anyway, in my opinion, 
would be an M2 Max or an M2 Ultra update to the Mac Studio lineup. And this is something that uh, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman had hinted at as well. So the Ultra processor and M2 form factor could have up to 24 processing cores. So um, 16 high performance cores and eight efficiency cores. And then a 60 core graphics up to 64, 60 core graphics support for 64, 128 or 192 gigabytes of memory. So really in my mind, becoming almost like a Mac pro, uh, it's going to get hard for Apple to differentiate between a Mac studio with say like an M2 ultra and a Mac pro, unless they can push the processor to the next level that had been rumored, but supposedly they've been struggling getting to, you know, the next level of the M series processor, sort of quadruple quadrupling the power of the ultra into this massive uh, thing for the Mac pro. So, Will we ever see a Mac Pro? Apple promised it. Uh, it was supposed to happen in 2022, but hasn't yet. But I do think we're going to see basically what is the equivalent in terms of a Mac Studio. And I, I feel like that's the strongest contender for Apple announcing uh, a new sort of pro-level Mac at a Worldwide Developer Conference. I guess they could also do something with that rumored sort of Pro Mini, but I kind of feel like we already have that in terms of the M2 Mac Mini, especially the M2 Mac Pro or M2 Pro Mac Mini. Uh, I think that sort of serves that bill. And then the other thing we're kind of hearing about is uh, related to the operating system uh, sort of across the board and that Apple could drop the hey part of Siri's trigger mechanism. And this, again, is according to Mark, Mark Gurman. He says Apple has been working on that, although it's been kind of tricky, but they could finally announce that and that Apple is also working on deeper Siri integrations with third-party apps and services, which is going to be a welcome addition. Anything they can do to continue to iterate on and improve Siri, I think is going to be welcomed by a lot of us Mac fans. I'm a huge Siri fan, but it's always good when it gets a little bit better and does a little bit more, and especially when it becomes a little bit more conversational and uh, can kind of answer more and more of your questions. So I'll be curious to see what they do with that as well. But expect a lot of really cool software things and outside of the ARVR headset also maybe um, some new some new Mac hardware. So again, it's going to be, I think, a very, very exciting Worldwide Developer Conference. And I'm looking forward to coming back to you with all of the sort of post keynote analysis and uh, reactions and stuff like that. So stay tuned. There are a couple new rumors surrounding iPhone this past week, and specifically not the iPhone 15 that we're expecting in the fall or the 15 models, but around the iPhone 16 models. And interestingly, both the rumors are related to the verticality of the device. <laughs> Basically, iPhone 16s are going vertical, folks. Uh, we had uh, the first set of rumors, which is about the height of the Pro models, possibly increasing t due to new larger display sizes. This information is coming according to analyst Ross Young. He claims that Apple's going to have a couple new displays in the iPhone 16 Pro and 16 Pro Max next year, and that they're going to do a 6.3-inch display and a 6.9-inch display, respectively. Leaker Sonny Dixon also told 9to5Mac that we could get a brand-new 6.9-inch Pro Max, but that it might be called the 
Ultra. Um, so I don't know if that necessarily means that they would keep the other size, the max size in the lineup, and then this would be a third pro model. I think they're going to stick with the just two models, and I can't imagine they'd go with a pro max and a ultra. I think it's going to stay iPhone 16 pro and then maybe iPhone 16 Pro Ultra. <laughs> Who knows? It'll be interesting to see if they make that change. But I, I'm not putting too much stock on that. Point is, they're going to have larger displays. The larger of the two displays, the uh, Pro Max model, the 6.9-inch one, would reportedly be about 5 millimeters taller and about half a millimeter wider than the current iPhone 14 Pro Max display. Now, if you know me, I am a fan of the smaller size, the... Uh, just the iPhone Pro. And uh, so this rumor doesn't uh, sit really great with me. Uh, you know, 6.3 inches. I didn't even like when they went from five, what 5.8 to 6.1, and now they're going to go to 6.3. They keep making my phone bigger, and I don't really think I need it. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. Supposedly, the reason they're doing this is for the camera system. So a rumor around this year's iPhone 15 Pro Max is that Apple could add the new uh, higher optical telephoto lens by using the periscope lens in the Pro. So up to maybe 6x or 10x optical zoom. And uh, to fit that stuff in, supposedly they need a little bit more room and that's why they're going with a larger display uh, next year, because the rumor is, is that um, the both models would get the telescoping lens in uh, 2024. So the iPhone 16 Pro and Pro Max would both have that. And so Apple needs a little bit more space for that telescoping lens. I don't know if that's the reason, but uh, that's what we're being told right now, at least from the rumor mill. Now, the other rumor related to the verticality of the iPhone is that the iPhone 16 and 16 Plus models next year could change the camera lens orientation from the current diagonal design back to a vertical orientation, basically returning it back to the way it was on the iPhone 12 models, if you remember that. So they'll just be stacked lenses. Apple had supposedly changed that design, I think, for some of the more advanced camera features. So I don't know if lens technology has changed that's enabling them to do that or they just need to do that for space reasons. It's not really clear at this time, but supposedly they're going to reorient the lenses. Not a big deal, but uh, just does change the look of the back of the iPhone a little bit. And then finally related to iPhone this week, we've got the iPhone 15 models. They're expected to be Apple's first ones to use USB-C ports instead of lightning ports. And there's also news that they're going to be likely the first phones from Apple to support the new Qi 2 wireless charging standard. I think Apple talked about uh, supporting this. It's actually based on Apple's MagSafe charging technology. So they've in that consortium and they kind of gave, gave back to it and they've positioned uh, Qi 2 wireless charging based it on some of Apple's technology. But what this means for you and me, if uh, we get an iPhone 15 model this year, is that any Qi 2 charger should be able to get the full 15-watt high-speed wireless charging. That's something currently with uh, the iPhone 14 models uh, that you need to get an Apple MagSafe charger to be able to do. If you use just a standard Qi charger, you're restricted to, I think, 7, 7.5 watts or something like that, so it's a slower charging standard. Um, so that will be changing reportedly this year as well with this year's iPhones. So uh, just some iPhone news to kind of cover this week. 
And then finally, uh, you may have received an email uh, about Apple's My Photo Stream or Photo Stream service, uh, that Apple is going to be shutting that service down and that you are going to need to transition to iCloud Photos before July 26th, 2023. So uh, you may or may not remember that uh, PhotoStream is the service that allowed you to upload the last 30 days of images from your iPhone, from your camera roll, uh, up into iCloud, up to a 1,000 uh, photos, and then sync those across your various devices. That is going to be going away in favor of iCloud Photo Library. Uh, right now, Apple recommends that if you want to have particular images from uh, your iCloud, from PhotoStream on specific devices, that you save them to your photo library prior to July 26th. Uh, the way PhotoStream works is that all of those photos should be in the camera roll uh, on whatever device you took them on, but of course they sync over to other devices through the cloud. So if you want them on, say, your Mac or your iPad or something like that, you're going to need to manually save them. To do that, just go into the Photos app, go into the PhotoStream album, and uh, then select the images that you want to save from that album. And then on iOS, you can use the share button to save them to back to your library on your device or on the Mac. You can just drag them uh, into your photo library to save them. But that service is going away. Um, I, like a lot of people, I think have transitioned to iCloud photo library uh, a while back. I guess the biggest disadvantage here is I think that uh, PhotoStream did not count against your storage and obviously if you're moving to iCloud photo library iCloud photo library is going to sync all of your photos in your library and uh, that does count against your storage so you know a lot of people probably rightly so are going to allege that apple's making this move uh, to get more people in iCloud photo library to sell more iCloud services and i definitely don't disagree with that um i think I wish Apple would address the issue of storage. I think they need to offer more base storage than the five gigabytes that they currently do. I understand they're trying to build their uh, their services division, and that's been working very, very well for them. But I think it's a little bit light compared to some of the, what the competition orders or offers rather for free. Um, but at the same time, you know, Apple also has their bundled plans with Apple One. So if you have more than two or three Apple services, uh, you might consider looking at some of those options because you do get additional storage with that, with iCloud at different tiers and levels. And it might make more sense financially uh, to go that route if you need more iCloud photo storage because you might be able to get some additional services at uh, little to no cost, no extra cost. And actually, that's the way the route I went. But, you know, I have all of the Apple services and I actually enjoy all of them. So something to look into, but I'd love to get your feedback on on this one too. Be interesting to hear from the community how you feel about Apple shutting down this older technology. But, you know, again, when you have two technologies, I think that are sort of similar like that, it does make sense to kind of go with the one that you're going to be supporting longer into the future. And so I think that's part of Apple's call as well. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor. And that is Shady Rays. You know, what's worse than buying a pair of expensive sunglasses and then losing them right after you get them? Breaking them. <laughs> Either of those two things are horrible. And especially as someone who in the past has bought very, very expensive 
sunglasses. You know, you you buy them, they're great, and then something like that happens. You either lose them, you leave them somewhere, you're on vacation. It's an awful feeling. But now, uh, with Shady Rays, I am not in that position anymore because Shady Rays makes high-quality sunglasses that, in my opinion, are just as good or even better than the expensive ones. And you get them at a fraction of the price. Plus, they are durable. They're built to tackle all of life's outdoor adventures, and they have timeless styles. I went with the classic timber, uh, which I think is a classic retro style that I really, really love. But if you have a different style, just browse their site. They have styles to meet everyone's tastes. Plus, all Shady Rays have polarized lenses for crystal clear vision and strong sun protection, and that is the real test of a good pair of sunglasses. Now, I won't have to worry about breaking or losing my Shady Rays because every pair of Shady Rays is backed by their industry-leading lost and broken replacements program. If you break or lose your pair, the second you take them out of the box, they will send you a replacement pair. You just have to pay a nominal replacement fee. And also, Shady Rays is not happy unless you're happy, and that's why they give you 30 days to try them, and if you don't like them, you can exchange them or return them for free. And with every order of Shady Rays, their impact program works with nonprofits worldwide to make an impact on the lives of children and young adults, like building play sets for pediatric cancer patients and creating adventures for young adults with cancer and MS. You and Shady Rays are making an impact together. So what's better than getting one pair of Shady Rays and not worrying about breaking or losing them? Getting two. Go to ShadyRays.com slash MacCast and use the code MacCast. And for a limited time, when you buy one pair of Shady Rays, you can get a second pair for free. That's S-H-A-D-Y-R-A-Y-S dot com slash MacCast with the code MacCast to get a second pair of Shady Rays free. ShadyRays.com MacCast and code MacCast. And a big thank you to Shady Rays for their support of the show. I want to do some follow-up on a conversation we had on a previous MacCast that came in from a listener who was talking about iOS and using iOS while doing activities. Specifically, I think in this case it was running, but it could be any kind of activity where maybe the iPhone is maybe not completely stable in your hand. Maybe you're running, you're jogging, or you've got it attached to a wrist strap or a shoulder strap or something like that. And he was just commenting that, you know, even just like running on a treadmill or something, it can be a little bit difficult to access some of the smaller controls or more finite controls in terms of music playback and stuff like that. So was asking for recommendations on, you know, what are ways around that? And I think I did some follow-up. I talked in that episode, I think a little bit about, um, one of the accessibility features that allows you to lock down certain portions of the display where you can just tap on um, specific buttons. I think it's called guided access. And uh, that was my kind of idea around it. Of course, uh, I asked for feedback from the community and a number of you came back and mentioned just using Siri. That's actually one of my preferred methods uh, is just to use Siri, but not necessarily everybody likes to use Siri, especially again, having to use that sort of extra action command of the word hey and uh, some people feel like Siri doesn't always work for them those sorts of things Um, so another great suggestion that came in was another accessibility feature and this came in from George and he mentioned uh, something that I think I've talked about 
way, way, way in the past on the MacCast, and that is voice control. I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, uh, iOS has this great feature, and this is also available on the Mac as well, I think. It might be called something different. Um, But on iOS, you have voice control in accessibility, and this gives you a whole bunch of voice commands that you can use without any kind of activation keywords to control, completely control, uh, the interface on your iOS device with your voice. It's actually really, really cool if you've never played around with it. I think the reason they don't advertise it as a big feature for a lot of folks is there probably can be false triggers or false activations. And I'll give you a little uh, tips on how you might get around this, specifically for this scenario where you're just trying to temporarily control a single app. Um, but uh, to access it, you just go into settings on your iOS device, go under accessibility and uh, find the voice control section, and you can just simply turn it on. Now, I'd recommend a couple of default settings first. So if you go down the list of settings, you can. there's an option that says show confirmation. Turn that on because that'll let you know when the command has actually been activated. It actually shows you on the display. I would also encourage you to turn on at least temporarily show hints because that will give you a little hints about commands. So if you don't get a command quite right, um, it can suggest a command to you and it gives you even a little info button you can tap on to get more information about that command. And then I would also set up an overlay. They have a couple different overlay options. Um, I like the one called item numbers or item names. And what this does is this puts little flags on the user interface elements, like a little overlay on the user interface elements when this feature is activated so that you can uh, know what to call out a specific button so you can say you know tap on item one or tap on and then the name of that item and uh, it will simulate a tap onto that with just your voice which is really really cool and then i also like to turn on the attention aware feature Um, so this means that it won't accidentally activate if you turn away from your phone um, and i think you need to have face id a face id device to do this but um If you turn away from your phone or move your attention away from the screen, i.e. you're not looking at it, um, it won't, the the feature basically turns off. So you have to be like looking at your phone or have your focus on your phone uh, for the feature to actually work. And that just makes it a little bit more usable in my opinion. So you can turn this on and then immediately there's all these commands. If you tap on the customized commands uh, section, that will give you a list of all the different commands and Basically, you can control everything on your phone. There's a lot of simple commands like tap ones or swipe gestures or go home. So you can say tap on an element or tap on this feature. You can say go home and it'll go back to the home screen. You can say swipe left, swipe right, swipe up, swipe down. It will perform all of those actions. Again, all of this is happening with just your voice, which is very, very cool. And so that's great for just basic navigation, but there's also a lot of advanced commands where you can go in and do really advanced things. Like you can do drag and drop. There's commands to kind of start a drag, to stop a drag action or drop something. Um, There's commands for doing advanced text selection and text editing and just everything. It It's really cool. I guess if you set the discipline to kind of learn all the commands, you probably could be a really good whiz at this. And then... You can also add your own commands, and these can be specific to an app, and you can even attach custom gestures to a specific app. So if an app has some kind of special 
specific gesture. You can do that. You can give it its own command and you can sort of expand uh, the available commands on an app by app basis or even just globally or whatever. So there's a lot you can really do with this. Um, I would also recommend that you set it up. And this, this is the key, I think, to using it is you set it up and enable it only when you need it. So say like during your workout and then you disable it afterwards. And I think the easiest way to do that is to add voice control to the accessibility shortcut uh, to be able to toggle the feature on and off sort of at will. And so to do that, if you go into settings, accessibility, and then look for accessibility shortcut, you can tap on voice control and add it to the list there. And uh, the accessibility shortcut feature is a feature where you can access different accessibility features from a simple menu by triple tapping the side button on your phone. That will bring up the accessibility shortcut menu and then you can toggle features on and off. And you can, through this setting, control what features are in that list and you can drag them around and order them in the order you want. So add voice control to that. And that way, when you start your workout, you can triple tap on the side button, turn on voice control. And then when you're running or jogging and you want to go to the next track, you can simply say, tap on next track or tap on next song or uh, turn volume up those sorts of commands and they will all just work and it's really really pretty cool and again if you have the overlay elements on there you can even tap on any button so like the play button might be number 10 if you're using the number version of that feature so you can say you know tap on 10 and it will tap on that element on the screen uh, all through your voice. Very, very cool. Something well worth checking out. And I appreciate all the feedback on this. It was it was great to hear from you in the community. Now, I don't know about you, but as I mentioned earlier in the show, I am a big fan of history. And you definitely know that I am a big fan of Apple. So in my opinion, combining those two things is just like uh, chocolate and peanut butter, right? It's like a Reese's peanut butter cup. Two great things uh, that taste great together. And uh, I was excited this week because um, there was a great thing over on The Verge or that The Verge put out related to some Apple history and specifically uh, history around the Lisa, the predecessor to the Mac. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Lisa, but you know, that was the project that eventually became the Mac and then went on to do two things. So Lisa was basically the first project that uh, Apple worked on that was going to have graphic user interface technology, the technology they got from Xerox Park. It was kind of Steve Jobs big project. Um, and it was going to be this business computer uh, really targeted at businesses and sort of upscaling Apple um, for a lot of reasons. And again, you can go and find the history on this. It uh, kind of went off the rails. Uh, it became a pretty big flop. It ended up being a $10,000 business computer. Um, IBM beat Apple to the punch in terms of a business computer, and they had their PC offering, which I think was around three or $4,000, much, much cheaper. During the development, Steve Jobs was actually kicked off the project, and it was that point where he took over the Macintosh team. So that's actually when he moved over to Macintosh. And then, you know, Steve Jobs being Steve Jobs, he allegedly sabotaged the Lisa project because he wanted Apple's focus on the Macintosh. And Macintosh basically had the same graphic user interface as Lisa and was a lot cheaper and all these other things. And so there was like this big uh, sort of fight internally at Apple 
between those two teams. I think they also fought with the, with the, the uh, Apple three team run by Waz as well. So, you know, a lot of tension going on at the company at that time. And when Apple officially killed the Lisa, they had actually only sold about 80,000 units and they had a bunch of leftover inventory. Supposedly they had, they had at least like 7,000 uh, leases that were ready to go in inventory. And uh, according to this documentary, uh, those were actually given on consignment to an Apple authorized dealer in Logan, Utah uh, called Sun Remarketing Inc. It was run by this guy named Bob Cook. And he took those machines and started refurbishing them because uh, a lot of them were broken and not working. They were kind of in not the best state. And uh, they even developed a new operating system for them based on Apple's Mac Plus operating system, something they actually got later uh, threatened to be sued or actually got sued by Apple over for sort of modding the operating system. But at that time, it was looked at as an advantage because Apple actually came to them and said, hey, we need your help with these computers we want to get rid of them and so they gave them to him on consignment he was selling them and refurbishing them and doing really cool things so they made this operating system they created uh, hard drive interface cards for them so you could put larger hard drives than they were originally designed for into them they added support for 800k floppies which were available at the time uh, they also even did screen modification roms uh, to make them uh, more compatible and more Mac-like in terms of the graphic user interface, because uh, the Mac's graphic user interface was in the hardware ROM uh, at the time. So uh, they were doing all these things, and they remarketed them as the Lisa Professional, and they were selling them starting in 1988 for under $1,000, starting at under $1,000. So I think they were in the $1,000, $2,000 price range at that time. So much cheaper than the original $10,000 machine that Apple, Apple launched. And they were pretty successful at selling them. And then all of the sudden, uh, about a year later in 1989, they still had about 3,000 machines left. Apple called and said, hey, we want those back. Uh, you, we, don't, we don't want you to sell them anymore. And it was a little bit odd, and they didn't really know what was going on. And um, they ended up kind of following these trucks that Apple sent to pick up these computers. So they sent trucks, they grabbed all the computers, and uh, followed them. It turned out they were driving them to the local landfill and burying them. And they actually had tried to hide this whole thing from the press. Apple did not want people to know that they were kind of destroying these computers. But uh, anonymously, Apple got a local newspaper got tipped off um, by someone at the landfill and representatives went over there. News reporters went over there. There were actually supposedly um, security representatives from Apple who were sent there to keep things secret. Allegedly, some of them ex-military personnel or I don't know, the story gets... It goes out there, <laughs> really. And it sort of feels to me like if you know the Atari E.T. cartridge burial in New Mexico in 1983, there's a whole documentary about that as well. If you've never heard about that, but you know Atari 2600, they made this E.T. game that was completely awful and they ended up burying those in new mexico um so very similar thing but apple buried three thousand lisa computers in logan utah in uh in 1989 and uh, the reason apple gave at the time was that uh, for them it was going to be cheaper to just destroy the machines and sort of take the tax write-off as a loss 
Uh, of course, a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people think they were trying to basically wipe out the history of the Lisa, which was this kind of giant flop and failure for Apple, and they just wanted the whole thing to go away, so they really didn't want these machines out there on the market anymore. Um, and, you know, I had always heard <laughs> the lore of this story. This has always been floating out there in our community. No one at Apple has ever officially commented on it. I don't know that there's anybody around who is even familiar uh, with the actual disposal. But again, The Verge did this great short documentary on this. Uh, I would highly encourage you, if this interests you at all, to go check out the film. It's on YouTube. It's about 30 minutes long, and it is a great, great watch for Apple fans. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I really wanted to kind of share the story with you because I think it's just amazing. And uh, it's one of those more obscure ones, I think, on our little community. So go check it out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at MattCast.com. And excellent, done, uh, excellent job done by The Verge. Received a time machine question this week that got me stumped a little bit. This came in from Jose, who wrote to ask a question about um, formatting his time machine backup drive. He has a two terabyte OWC Mercury Elite Pro Mini SSD. Nice drive, by the way. And uh, was using Disk Utility to format it as APFS encrypted, set it up as a time machine drive, and then after checking the drive later in Disk Utility, he noticed that its format was listed as an APFS volume, which was correct, but in the format of APFS case-sensitive encrypted. And he didn't remember selecting case-sensitive as the format. He checked another time machine drive, and it, too, was also case Case sensitive. Um, and so it's not 100% clear to me. I was trying to find a definitive answer on Apple for this, but um, according to my research, it seems like Time Machine may actually force drive formatting to actually be case sensitive. And if you think about it, this kind of makes sense because the reason to have a backup, right, is to protect your files from being inadvertently overwritten. And so your time machine drive actually, it has to be case sensitive or should be case sensitive formatting because if you are backing up a drive and time machine will back up every external drive, the internal drive and any external drive automatically that's connected to your Mac, unless you tell it not to, um, if you had any single drive connected to your Mac that was formatted as case sensitive, then you could have file names that were duplicates. So say you had a drive that was formatted as case sensitive, but Time Machine was not case sensitive. If the case sensitive origin drive, say, had a file called file.txt with a capital F and then file.txt all lowercase and then file.txt all uppercase, then Time Machine would back those up to a non-case sensitive Time Machine drive and you'd only have one version of that file. It One would overwrite the other, which would be terrible. You would not, you would definitely not want that. So I had never really thought about this or noticed this before, but I'm pretty sure that uh, the reason, Jose, this is going on is that exact reason, that your time machine drive really does need to be case sensitive and you'd want it to be case sensitive uh, so that you don't have this situation happen. So I think that's what's going on, at least from all my research. If I'm wrong or misunderstanding that, I'm sure the community will correct me, but I'm pretty sure that's exactly what's happening.
And then uh, the last thing that I have for you this week is a couple really cool little, I'm going to call them quick tips uh, from a couple of listeners. The first one came in from Robert, who mentioned that he does a lot of iOS screen recording. And if you've ever done screen recording on an iOS device, it's typically you can start and stop it from Control Center. There's a little Control Center widget you can turn on. And once you start screen recording on iOS, uh, the typical way that you stop it is there's a little red recording light up at the top of the screen, and you tap on that. Or I think if you have a device with Dynamic Island, you can now access it through the Dynamic Island, but you tap on that, and then you can stop the recording. Um, the issue Robert has always had is that when you do that and you end up stopping the recording, it actually records the UI for stopping the recording. So you actually see that as part of your video and you often have to edit that out. It adds kind of this extra step. And so what Robert discovered was that if your phone actually goes to sleep while you're in the middle of the recording, and I think he ac accidentally triggered it by covering up the uh, the sensor on his iPhone. If it stops recording or goes to sleep, it will immediately stop recording. Uh, the good news is, though, that it also immediately saves your video file to your photos. So if you want to be able to do an iOS screen recording and not have that stop action as part of your recording, an easy way to do that is to simply press the side button on your device to put the device to sleep. That will stop the recording immediately and save that recording into your photos. So I thought that was a really cool little tip. I guess you could also try to, you know, cover the uh, the sensor, the proximity sensor and, and get it to go to sleep that way. But I think it's easier just to do it with the uh, with the side button. So I thought that was a great little tip uh, and uh, something to uh, kind of share. And then the other one that I received uh, came from Eric, who says, hey, I do a lot of screenshots on my Mac to share with people and kind of show them how to do different things. And uh, if you do a lot of screenshots on your Mac, you know that one of the things can ha that can happen is you end up with a lot of extra screenshot files on your desktop or wherever your location for saving your screenshots are. And so Eric said, hey, I didn't really see this in Apple's keyboard shortcuts uh, sort of documentation on the uh, support website, but there is actually a way if you don't want to save that file on your Mac, when you take the screenshot, what you can do is you can add the control button into the screenshot shortcut uh, command. Uh, and what that does is that actually ends up saving the file directly into your clipboard rather than saving the screenshot file on your Mac. So if you're going to do a whole screenshot, if you hold command shift control three instead of just command shift three, or if you want to do the selection version of a screenshot, command shift control four instead of command shift four, then it will go to the clipboard and then you can just paste it into your text or your email and it won't save the extra file onto your Mac. So that's kind of a handy quick way to do that. The only thing to note about that is if you like the feature, when you take a screenshot where it gives you the little preview on the more modern OSs, and then you can tap on that and you can do um, you can do markup on top of it, um, it will bypass that process when you're holding the control key down. It just goes straight to the clipboard. Uh, so just be aware of that. But cool little tip and trick. And then uh, another thing that I like to do surrounding the uh, the version where you actually save the screenshot is. I'm one of those people who, uh, who I don't like a messy desktop, and I think the default location for screenshot saves, 
hopefully I'm remembering this correctly, is the desktop. So I ended up changing my default save location, and there's a pretty easy way to do that too. You can use the screenshot command command plus shift plus five, and that will actually bring up a little screenshot dialog box. This is cool because it gives you a bunch of different options for taking screenshots in a little user interface element but one of those things in that menu is an options button and if you tap on the options button you can select the save location for your screenshots Um, so they have a bunch of default locations like your your pictures folder or the desktop or your downloads folder they also have an other locations option where you can point to any folder you want and i actually set mine up to go to a screenshots folder that i created inside my home folder so all my screenshots end up in one place i can go back through there from time to time and sort of clean that up probably could also write some scripting to do that as well if i was a little more of an automated person Uh, but that's a that's a way to go and like i said this little menu has a bunch of other cool screenshot options like changing the timer delay showing you the cursor when you take the screenshot which can be helpful if you're trying to show somebody something so a bunch of cool things in there so if you don't know about the command shift 5 command for taking screenshots because we've had command shift 3 and command shift 4 for a long long time um, check that out as well so some great quick tips for you there but with that that is going to do it for the show for this week uh, before I leave you, I do want to take a moment and thank a couple show supporters. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You could find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9, and you can leave a voicemail for me there. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to find me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You could check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram. But with that, that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.